I think we can just learn so much from uh, the study of history. And I'm aware that history, like any discipline, any study, any, any discipline that we would study, history also goes through various trends. There are trends, it, it follows those. For example, in the 19th century, I think that history in many ways was read through a very optimistic lens as people looked out and saw the development of mankind and, and it was as though that 19th century evolutionary thought of things getting better and better and better just captivated everything, including our reading of history, things getting better and better. Come the next century, the 20th century, and actually the reading of history becomes increasingly pessimistic, and actually for good reason. I mean, we've, we've been commemorating, haven't we, this, this year, the centenary of the Great War. And many of you, I'm sure, will have seen the um, uh, fantastic poppy commemoration at the Tower of London. And because it gives us a bit of a feel for the extraordinary loss of life as we look out, as we looked out on that scene. But the, the, the unimaginable conditions that people were, were living in and just thought the horror of war. Well, add to that another world war, several holocausts, and then countless other battles and wars and people doing extraordinary things right the way into this century where really a week does not go by when we do not hear of some new brutality, some you know, new twist to terrorism that just leaves our hearts feeling sick. What we are capable of doing to one another, humankind. And it really begs the question as we stand back and we, we think about this, and history generally, begs the question, where is this all going to end? Well, who can explain it? Who, who can explain this world and where history will end and what mankind will do in the end? God, of course, knows. He can explain it. He knows history from the beginning to the end. And the Bible gives us an absolutely unique view of history. You won't find it anywhere else. And it tells us, it unfolds for us what is going to happen. Turn with me to Revelation chapter five. <clears throat> Revelation chapter five, it will come up on the screen if uh, you haven't a device or something with you. And here we're given, in this chapter, a glimpse into heaven, a glimpse into history, if you like. There's the acknowledgement that there, it is an extraordinary mystery. Who can explain it? And also, there is the recognition that actually, if we are going to understand it and really figure out what is going on, we need someone to unlock it for us. We cannot do it ourselves. It must be unlocked for us. So let me pray and then I'll read from this chapter. Father, thank you again 
for your presence, for the opportunity of being together, but thank you again for the amazing gift of the Bible. Thank you for the treasure that you have given us. Thank you for the things that are revealed in the pages of the Bible which we cannot know anywhere else, cannot find anywhere else. And so we thank you and our simple prayer again this morning is, Lord, would you speak to us? Help us to hear, help us to see what you want us to hear and see. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Reading from verse one, Revelation five, then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. And I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or to look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep, see the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. A scroll that we see in this vision that the Apostle John gives us containing a great deal, notice in verse one, it's written on both sides, it's absolutely crammed full. It tells the story of history. What has happened in this world that God has created. Um, but it's sealed to human investigation. Uh, in fact, you'll notice in, in verse three that not just sealed to human investigation, but also to what is above the earth, to the angelic realm, they don't know what is going to happen, nor uh, to those on the earth, humanity, neither to those under the earth, to fallen angels, to Satan himself. It is a closed book to all of us unless God chooses to reveal it to us. And consequently, we, humankind, is in the dark about the world and its future. Really in the dark about what is really going on. And John, having seen this vision, first of all, of God sitting on the throne, the majesty of God sitting on the throne, he's deeply depressed by this thought that nobody can open this and reveal what God is going to do, this majestic God, how's he, how he's going to work everything out. And so he weeps and weeps, and then we're told that the scene completely changes in heaven. And we see the lion, the lion. And that image just evokes so much in us, doesn't it? So much about a sense of awe, a sense of majesty, a sense of wildness, untamedness, a lion, not just any lion, this is the Messiah, this is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. The Lord Jesus Christ who would come into the world through that human line, he is revealed 
as the lion, and he is the one, we are told, who can unlock this scroll, crammed full of history from beginning to end. And just note the word that is used in verse five, the lion takes the scroll, and we're told that he has triumphed. He's triumphed. He's triumphed, and he unlocks the scroll, reveals what is to happen for us. I've consequently called this talk, you will have seen it on the, on the screen earlier on, God's triumph in history. His triumph in history. Do you know, God's account of history, as I've already said, is like no other. He sees the end from the beginning. You can't find that anywhere else. I mean, men, mankind can make predictions about what they think is going to happen and, and, and so on. But for God, history is an open book or an open scroll, a complete open scroll. He sees it all. And for him, it is a panorama. There's nothing that he doesn't see from beginning to end of history. Many of you will have been on the London Eye, I'm sure. Well, on a, on a fine day, it's, it, it's that view that you get of London when you're at the top, north, south, east, and west, 360 degrees, you really begin to get a feel for the way that London is laid out in a way that you just cannot get as you drive around the streets. You look down on it and you, and you see it. That's what God has given us in the treasure of the Bible. We see the beginning to the end and what lies in between where we find ourselves, us playing a part in God's extraordinary story in this world. And of course, the story begins in the first chapters of Genesis. And we're told there in those opening chapters of Genesis that God was, was involved in creating a world and a universe of extraordinary beauty of such beauty that in the second chapter, chapter two and verse 15, he says that mankind, or it's described as a garden, first of all, in the second chapter, as a garden, and that in verse 15 of chapter two, we're told that, that, that mankind, as God's representatives on the earth, made in the image of God, we are to work the earth and to care for it to care for it. That was our first great commission from God, to steward and care for the creation as God's representatives here upon the earth. But we know how the story goes on, how quickly things go horribly wrong. Just the third chapter of God's story, and there is a, 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 a cataclysmic fall, a disastrous entering into the world of evil, a catastrophe that happens, that actually has an effect not just upon humankind and wrecks our relationships one with another, wrecks our relationship with God, but also wrecks our relationship with the creation. Everything is dislocated and disjointed. And you know, secular history, as much as I love reading it, it really does not understand the source or the magnitude of the challenge that we are facing. It really doesn't understand that humankind in this world is totally out of its depth, totally out of its depth. 
What ails this world, we're told in that third chapter, is that there has been an unleashing of spiritual evil which goes way beyond small little humanity. Forces opposed to God and to his creative good purposes in the world, his love for this world, that has been unleashed. And more than that, that mankind, humankind, from the beginning of the story was complicit in that evil, in that spiritual evil, that turning our backs on God, thinking that we knew better, thinking that we could find our own way in in this world, and you know, right, right when that catastrophe happens in God's story, right at the very, very beginning, we have God's words of promised triumph coming when we find ourselves in that predicament. And so in chapter three and verse 15, we're, we're, we're told that there's going to come a time, this is the triumph that is promised, there's going to come a time when the head of Satan, who is the center of this spiritual evil opposed to God, his head is going to be crushed. And it's going to happen through the offspring of the woman who comes, the lion of the tribe of Judah, that one who will come into the world, God himself as a man, come to do what we cannot do for ourselves. The promise of triumph, right at the very beginning of the story. Do you know, this is expressed, this reality of promised triumph is expressed so beautifully by C.S. Lewis in the Narnia Chronicles. Um, in, In the first book of that series, The Magician's Nephew, where he tells the story about the creation of Narnia, the new world. But he also tells in that story the story of the boy Diggory, who is the person who wakens the witch and unleashes evil in the new Narnia. Just, I can't resist, let me read just a couple of lines from from this book. When the lion, Aslan, spoke again, it was not just to Diggory. You see, friends, he said, that before the new clean world I gave you is seven hours old, a force of evil has already entered it, waken and brought hither by this son of Adam. But do not be cast down, said Aslan. Evil will come of this evil, but it is still a long way off. And I will see to it that the worst of it falls on me. And as Adam's race has done the harm, Adam's race shall help to heal it. Draw near. Draw near. Wonderful picture, the promise of triumph, the coming of the lion, promising that he will put things right, promising that there will be a triumph, given to us right at the very beginning of the story when things go so badly wrong. So the triumph has been promised, but how is it going to be achieved? How's it gonna be achieved? Let's read on in our chapter, Revelation chapter five. Um, Verse six, 
Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He came and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Had a word about this this morning. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe and language, people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. What an extraordinary development that happens here. The lion we, are, we see turns out to also be the lamb. In fact, the triumph over evil is achieved by the lion becoming the lamb. The one who is able to unlock all of history is also the one who becomes the lamb. And notice in verse nine, the words used of this lamb, that he was slain, that his blood was shed, and this was in order that he would be able to purchase people for God in order to redeem people, in order to ransom people. He laid down his life. His blood was shed so that that could actually happen. Just imagine if you were a hostage, just you know, your life ebbing away in some awful place, imprisoned, and then suddenly out of the blue, the ransom was paid, and you were free. You were free, you were restored. Life came back. In, into your life. That's the picture of what we see. It's speaking, of course, of the cross, isn't it? As it speaks about the lamb, the lamb that was slain. Speaking of the cross, the cross where Satan's head was crushed by the offspring that comes from the woman. The cross is the fulfillment of Genesis 3:15. Satan's head is crushed and Paul, of course, talks about this, helps us with this, about what happened at the cross in Colossians chapter two. And he says, actually, at the cross, as you, as you look at that, you realize, or he tells us, that there, Satan, the source of all spiritual evil, was disarmed. In fact, more than that, when, when Jesus died on the cross, he made a public spectacle of the enemy, and he, here's the word again, in Colossians uh, 2.15, triumphed, triumphed over him by the cross. Now, what did that achieve? Well, Paul tells us in, in the previous couple of verses, in verses 13 and 14 of Colossians 2, he says that what that does for us is that, is that it brings us to life, as we've just thought. We've, we've been purchased back for God. We've been ransomed. We've been brought back to life. We were dead in our rebellion against God, in our wayness. We just really didn't understand who he was or what was available. 
And so we were dead to him. We were dead to, in many ways, to people round about us and to the world that God has put us in. But he brings us to life by what Jesus does for us on the cross. Now, you guys, in a few weeks, are going to be celebrating a baptism. What, what an, a totally appropriate, important, necessary time to mark this milestone event in a person's life where, where God opens up eyes, they understand what has actually happened at the cross that they've been brought to life. And so as they go down into the water and come up, you know, there's the, the old life is gone. They've, they've been brought to new life. What a wonderful, thrilling, appropriate, necessary thing to be done. And so as we look at the, 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 the cross, we see this substitution. Something is done for us. Our death is taken away and we're given life. We're given life. You know, early in the um, 20th century, there was a, a, a Swiss mountaineer that was setting out to go over an extremely high pass in the Alps, uh, down into a neighboring valley and in, into a village down, down there. And he set off. And he was caught in one of these freak changes of conditions that can just happen so quickly. He's caught in the most awful, down, just snow being dumped, um, blizzard conditions, whiteout conditions, just awful conditions. And, um, you know, friends and family back in his home village realized that he must be in just a, an extraordinary predicament. And so they send out, as they did in those days, a rescue dog. St. Bernard's, able to go up these mountain paths and so on, where, where no human being in these sort of conditions, howling wind, could, could ever go. You just get blown off the mountain. Up it goes. After a considerable amount of time, hours, the dog comes across the scene. And there is the man collapsed, very weak, covered in, in snow, and um, very disorientated. And in his delirium, he thinks that the St. Bernard's is a bear. And he takes his knife and he stabs it. 24 hours later, when the storm has passed, they send out a search party from his village up the mountain tracks. After several hours, they come up across the scene. This great dog lying on top of the man, dead, the man saturated in his blood, but alive. You know, Martin Luther said, if we really want to understand the good news, if we really want to understand the Christian message, we must start with the wounds of Christ, that he was slain, that his blood was shed for us so that we could be made alive, made alive. Triumph promised, triumph achieved, 
And lastly, the triumph of history completed. The scroll has been opened. We know how history ends. God has chosen to reveal that to us. To those of us who believe, it's all there for us, laid out in front of us. Just glance with me to uh, the penultimate chapter of Revelation. Let me read these these words to, to you. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. This is how it's going to be completed. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, now the dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eye. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. An an extraordinary restoration of creation and of humanity. Yes, preceded, we don't have time this morning, yes, preceded by a purifying judgment. That's the only way there can be a new world. Nothing from the old world can go into it that is going to make it like the old world was. And so at the cross, Jesus disarmed evil. At the final judgment, he's going to remove its presence so that there can be a new heaven and a new earth. And for those who believe, those who put their trust in Jesus, who are followers of of his, our judgment has already taken place. It took place at the cross. We have nothing to worry about the future judgment. We go through that into God's completed restoration, his new world. You know, secular history suggests, doesn't it, that the the actions of great people down through the pages of history, they're the key players, whether they are politicians or prime ministers or great generals and, and so on. God's story, when we look at his story of history, tells us actually those people are on the periphery. Because this is Christ's story, this is God's story, and he is working it out, and it is the lion, who is also the lamb, who is at the center of the new completed world that God creates, and that we are going to be a part of. Let me just read from the the final chapter of the Bible. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and the lamb. There is God and the lion who is the lamb right at the center of this new world, this new city. Um, Down the middle of the great street of the city, On each side of the river stood trees of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding their fruit every every month. The leaves of the trees are there for the healing of the nations. What What an extraordinary picture with the lion who is the lamb right at the center of it. He is the Lord of history, the one who has promised triumph, the one who has achieved triumph, the one who is going to complete the triumph of history when that new world is created. He's unlocked it all. He's unlocked it all. 
Do you know the story began in a garden? It ends in a city. It has a rural beginning. It has an urban ending. But do notice this. It is a garden city. It's a garden city. And it's, it, we, we see that in that place, there is under God's restoration, the most amazing bringing together the balance between nature and culture, between creation and humanity. That is brought back into a wonderful harmony that we see in that garden city. Well, this is amazing because this view of history which God alone can give us, which we take into our hearts and believe, it is, once we receive it, what gives meaning to our lives. It gives such a sense of purpose to our lives. I mean, the implications that flow from this, most of the people in the world have no idea about this reality that we've been talking about this morning, how the story unfolds and how it ends. But Jesus is the Lord of history. And he's the one that gives this meaning to our lives. I mean, we have a future in God's glorious, restored universe. I mean, what a, what a privilege as we think about that. Rather than fearing the future, we can look forward to it with growing anticipation. Every day that we live, we're, 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 we're one day nearer than we were the day before to this new world that God is, going to be, God is going to be creating. Jesus said the most remarkable words in, in, um, in John chapter 11 when he said, those who believe in me will never die. Will never die. You know, we, we, we will pass through death, but actually not for a moment will we be separated from his life and his presence. And, and, and maybe most amazing of all for our present living of, of, of life is, is that all the things that we've been talking about this morning have drawn near to us in the kingdom, have drawn near to us in Jesus. The kingdom is here, Jesus has said. It's, it's so close. What, what was near? Well, Jesus was near. It was his life. And you know, as, as we look at his life, the more we see that, the more it changes everything. We, 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 in the pages of the Gospels, we see that he walked through this life with this extraordinary peace resting upon him. Not stressed and anxious about this, that, and the other, just an, an overriding, steadying peace. We see him living, living his life in this world completely content. You know, loving the things that he had, not hankering for the things that he didn't have. Just a wonderful freedom of contentment. A person who is free from carrying grudges and resentments against other people who have hurt him, is just free of all of that. What? This is an extraordinary life. A life as we look at, at the life of Jesus who is finding ways of being radically kind to people as he just goes out every day into the world. And, and, lives, and lives his life. A joy which rests upon him because he knows that his father just has everything in control. He's, he's working everything out. I mean, it's an extraordinary thing. And I wanna say, as we close this morning, you know, the more that we see Jesus, 
the more we are going to desire him and his life. The more that we desire him, the more we are going to love him. The more that we love him, the more we are going to take hold of the life that only he has, that he died to give us, but it needs to be received. And you know, the more we live in that life, which I've just described, that life of Jesus, the more people round about, you and me, as we interact with them in the course of our daily lives, the more those people are going to say, that is the most amazing thing that I have ever seen. I must have it. I must have it. The life of Jesus. The gift that has to be received. Let's bow our heads and pray. Just a couple of moments. Has God been speaking to you this morning? That's, that's all that matters. Doesn't matter what I've said, but has God been speaking to you this morning? Has something become clear that maybe wasn't clear before? I, I do feel that, that I need to pray a prayer of commitment, or I want to pray a prayer of commitment this morning as, as, as we start. And maybe there are some here who have never actually taken that step and saying, I see Jesus' life. That is what I must have. That's what I so desperately need. Me living my life trying to work things out is a complete failure in comparison to that. And this prayer would, would be for you, but I think there may be others also. You've, you, 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 you're a follower of Jesus. You've, you've prayed this prayer of commitment before, but somehow or other, I don't know, have you, have you lost touch with the reality of what's going on? Or, or, or maybe have, have you confused the starting line with the finishing line? You know, actually the joy of being a follower of Jesus is having received that gift, is then every day of our life entering into it and receiving it afresh every day as daily bread. New for us. So let me just, just pray. You can make this prayer of your commitment. You're speaking to God. Thank you. Thank you, Lord Jesus, the lion who is the lamb, that you died, your blood was shed, to make me alive to you, both now and for all eternity into that new world. Thank you that in your love you've opened the book from beginning to end, the story of history, so that we see it all. I see a little bit of your life, and it's the pearl, Lord, it's the pearl. Nothing compares to it. How I want to live that life rather than my life. And so, Lord, I reach out and I receive that gift which you hold out to me. Thank you for it. I must have it. I must have it. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.
Guys, just, um, this, is, this is for you and God, okay? It's not for me, it's not for anyone one else. But there is something important when we draw a line in the sand spiritually of identifying with that. That's why baptism is important, coming up in a couple of weeks. And I want to, I just want to um, ask those who have prayed that prayer, whether for the first time or whether, do you know, a, a, re, a writing in pen, what you've written in the past just in pencil. I want to just ask you to stand. I'm not going to ask you to come forward, but just as a sign of, yes, Lord, this is what I've done. This is what I've done. Just stand where you are. I'd love to pray for you. Draw a line in the sand. Let let, let me just tell you from my own personal experience something that I wished I had done when I became a follower of Jesus at the age of 15. I wish at that time I I had made more of a public stand when the event actually happened. Bless you guys. I I want to ask now, those of you just sitting around these people, will you reach out a hand, lay lay hands, I'm gonna pray, and just lay your hands upon these these people, because I want to pray for the Spirit of God to be upon them. Father, thank you, thank you for these dear people, these ones that you love, who you have died for, and who you want to bind into all eternity with yourself. We pray now that the power of your spirit, the presence of Jesus, his life, would so come down upon them, would so engage their heart and their mind now, that you would just fill them with the life of Jesus. The kingdom is near, it's here. It's there for the taking. Jesus gives it to you as a gift. Seal that in this life. Make them strong now in the sense, Lord, of realizing that it's, it's just your life. It's not our life. Let the old life go. Take his life and walk with confidence day by day into the future. We bless you in the name of Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Do you know the other word, just as you... Pray for those. Just the other, the other simple word. What was? Um, I just just sense it. It's that thing about daily bread. The Lord brought to mind. There's something about the Christian life, being a follower of Jesus, where we we have to we have to go to Him freshly every day for the life that He wants to give us. Now, I want you to see this not as some sort of drag. Oh, what you mean? I've got to do this every day. Don't see it as a drag. See it as the the most the, the, a huge relief that you just need to live one day at a time and that we need to go to him and receive life afresh, Jesus' life rather than our own life, the kingdom life afresh. And so it's daily bread in that sense and we take it on and then we live in, in that. We come back and we feed off Jesus and the life that he's wanting to give us. So, um, guys, why don't you stand? If, if, if you would like prayer this morning for that, uh, like others to pray for you, or if you've come with some need for, for healing, possibly, for some other need, just come on forward as, 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 as we worship, and there'll be people who will pray for you.